You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series on Ephesians. Thanks for joining me, Nathan Johnson, in an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's dive into the lesson for the day. Well, on Tuesday mornings, we are going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. And uh, so what I'd like to do today is just kind of give an overview or a cursory kind of grand scope view of the book. And I think that'll lay a foundation of context as we get into and actually talk about uh, the book itself. Uh, so my plan starting next week is we're actually going to dive in and look at the introductory statement uh, that Paul makes in chapter 1. Uh, but again, for today, I kind of want to lay a foundation of this idea of if you could grab a hold of the context of Ephesians, if you understand why, why is being written, who is being written to, it kind of gives us a better understanding uh, for the book as a whole. So that being said, uh, in my mind, Ephesians is basically a book all about position. Uh, Paul is very aggressive on this language, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments. Uh, but I'm calling it the epistle of position. <clears throat> now, it's important to note that Ephesians itself is in a small collection of Paul's epistles. So obviously Paul, I think he wrote, thir- is it 13 books? I think it's 13 uh, that we know of. Uh, Hebrews is still questionable of who wrote Hebrews. But of the books that Paul wrote, uh, four of them primarily are what we typically call the prison epistles. Now, the prison epistles uh, would be Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so these are the books that, that Paul wrote while in prison in Rome. And so they're kind of a small group. This is right before he dies. Um, we'll talk about that in just a second here. But it's a small group of writings that he's writing from prison, exhorting these churches uh, that had started uh, under his watch. So what I want to do is I want to walk through part of the book of Acts and part of Paul's story and talk about how this book, Ephesians, even came to be, uh, which is actually rather fun and interesting. So let's just run through this. In 49 to 52 AD, Paul sets on his second missionary journey. So he's leaving. The church commissions him, says, hey, go out, proclaim the news. And he begins to go around the ancient world describing and talking about the grandeur of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So... As Paul's going on this second missionary journey, Paul ends up traveling through Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. So as he's returning from his second missionary journey, he's trying to get to Jerusalem. He's in Ephesus, uh, just kind of as a stopover, if you will. Now, Acts 18, verses 19 through 22, says this, that Paul arrived at Ephesus and left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and lectured the Jews. When they asked him to remain for a while longer, he did not consent, but bidding farewell said, I must by all means attend this upcoming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So you hear this kind of desire of Paul that here's Paul. He has, to get, he has to get to Jerusalem for the feast time. But he says, hey, if there's, if there's a possibility, I'll come back. I'll swing back through at some point, and I'll spend some time in Ephesus. Now, it's interesting <clears throat> that as he's ending his second missionary journey, and here he is in, in Jerusalem and Antioch area, it seems to be, at least according to the book of Acts, it's like this thought hits Paul, and it's like, you know what? I could totally change my strategy for how I do missions work. And it's interesting because as he begins his third missionary journey, he takes a completely different approach than he did on his first two missionary journeys. So look at this. Uh, Right after this point, so here's Paul. He visits Ephesus, goes to Jerusalem and Antioch. Right at this point, this guy by the name of Apollos shows up in Ephesus and begins to preach. 
Now, we know that Apollos has understanding, but it's not a full understanding. And, it's, and we know that because Aquila and Priscilla kind of deepen him. So listen to this from Acts 18, verses 24 through 26. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, so this would be Africa, Egypt area, who was an eloquent man and powerful in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. But being fervent in spirit, he accurately spoke and taught the things concerning the Lord. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him and explained the way of God more accurately. So what you're beginning to get is this, this seed or this idea that here is this church in Ephesus, and here's Paul, he visits and says, wow, this, hey, this is a great location, this is great, I'll, I'll try to visit you. Apollos comes in, begins to proclaim things, which then uh, Aquila and Priscilla kind of sharpen, if you will, and say, hey, this is all about Jesus. And not only that, but hey, this is the whole influence of the Holy Spirit thing. Now, as Paul heads out on his third missionary journey, oh, all that to say, it's like the seedbed of Ephesus is, is rich for the gospel. In other words, it's like there's this murmuring happening in Ephesus, and people are ready, they're ripe for the gospel. So Paul heads out on his third missionary journey, which lasts from 53 to 58 AD. Now, he leaves the church in Antioch, which would be in the northern Israel part. And he literally travels through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he stays in Ephesus for nearly three years. Do you recognize that this is a completely different strategy than Paul has had up to this point? See, on all his other missionary journeys, he would show up into this town, he would preach, he would proclaim, he'd spend a week or two, he would establish the church, and he'd say, all right, I gotta, I gotta keep going, good luck, praying for you. And then he would go to the next place, and he would set up the church, and he would preach and proclaim and declare Jesus, and then after a couple of weeks after they're established, he would leave and move on to the next place. So for two missionary journeys, that's how Paul is functioning. But it seems like as he traveled back through Ephesus and he lands in Jerusalem and Antioch, the thought hits him, hold on. I could stay at one place. And I don't know if you recognize, but that is actually a brilliant thought for Paul. And the reason being is Ephesus is not just, well, let's just pick a town like Windsor, Colorado. Ephesus is not Windsor, Colorado. Uh, Windsor is like New York City, London. It's those kind of places. It's very strategic. And so it seems like Paul has this thought of like, well, rather than trying to go to all these little towns and, and building churches, why don't I go to the very crossroads of the world? And as I'm in the crossroads of the world, everyone's coming to, and passing by me, and then they'll take the message out. Does that make sense? It's actually a brilliant thought. So obviously, Paul saw the tremendous advantage of spreading the gospel by staying in one strategic location. So here's a picture, and I, I know this is going to be hard to see, and I apologize for that. Uh, but this is all of Paul's missionary journeys shoved on one graphic. <laughs> but what we're looking at is this green one. So here's Antioch up here. So here's Israel down here. Up north, here's Antioch. Paul leaves Antioch, travels through the interior of Turkey, Asia Minor, lands in this place called Ephesus. It's right here on the eastern uh, shore of the Mediterranean Sea in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Now, here's the question. Why Ephesus? Why would Paul decide to be at a place called Ephesus for nearly three years? Why, why that place? Of all the places, why that one? Well, let me tell you. So again, Ephesus is on the eastern coast of modern-day Turkey. Its population during the time of Paul 
was an astounding 250,000 people. This was one of the largest cities in the Roman world. So outside of Rome, Ephesus is one of the biggest cities in the Roman world. Isn't that fascinating? Not only that, it was called a city made of marble. It just glistened with the marble. It was supposed to be a spectacular, beautiful, beautiful city. It was, a major deep, it was the major deep water port in Asia Minor, and thus a major city of commerce and trade in the Roman world, making it a very wealthy and influential city. So as you, as you recognize, as trade is happening, we have to get to these ports to be able to, to do our trade inland. And so you pick some key strategic ports. For example, in Israel, Caesarea is the deep water port. Herod the Great built up the port, made it a great port. It was a very famous port in the Roman world. Uh, Ephesus will be another one of those. It was a major deep water port. It was literally the inroads to all of Asia, to, to you know, Turkey and Asia and, and all that kind of stuff. This was the port you would go to. So if you imagine, here's this massive city, one of the biggest cities in the Roman world. It had the deepest water port of that region, which means all of the major commerce and trade was going through one city called Ephesus. And so if you think about this logically, uh, here I am, uh, I, I sell pottery, right? Or blankets. I'll, I'll, I'll sell blankets. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, I bring my blankets to Ephesus, and I'm going to sell them inland. So as the owner, I am going with my merchandise. And so here I am, I, I land in Ephesus, and then as they're unloading, I probably go to the theater, and I spend some time in Ephesus, and I relax because, whoa, that boat ride was just exhausting. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? You know, I mean, we think our plane rides are long you know, when we're traveling across the country. But, you know, whoo, could you imagine several days or weeks or months on a boat and you're finally done and you're just kind of, you're wobbly, you know, because of the, of, the, of the wave thing and what is that called? Uh, seasick, yeah, that thing. <laughs> Obviously, I'm on a boat a lot. So, right, and so I spend a few days and I, I go to the, the Roman bathhouses and I relax and I just enjoy the culture and I go to all the best restaurants and I, again, I attend the theater and all this kind of stuff. And now it's like, oh, well, I have to now take my, my product inland, and now I begin this cross-country journey on foot. So Ephesus was like this major hub where everything was passing in and out of. So it makes sense then that Paul would pick a place like this to say, if I'm going to place or encamp in one location, I can proclaim the truth here, and that's going to be spread across all over the world from one strategic location because everyone's passing through. Now, the people in Ephesus were very sophisticated and educated. Now, you realize that this is a very different crowd than what Paul is, has been used to. For example, in Corinth, the people in Corinth were mainly dock workers or cult prostitutes from the temple Aphrodite. So when, he's, when, when Paul is dealing with those in Corinth, he's dealing with a, you know, it's the blue-collar workers, you know, they, they kind of a southern accent, that, you know, they wear suspenders, you know, that kind of thing. They listen to country music, you know, I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but that's, the, that's the group that he's, that he's dealing with in Corinth. But when he gets to Ephesus, right? I mean, this is like, uh, this is like going to uh, Boston, right? Where you have all these major Ivy League schools and everyone, you know, wears glasses whether they need it or not. Why? Because it makes you look smarter. That's why I wear them, right? And, you know, and they, they walk around with their nose in the air. And that, I mean, that, that would be Ephesus. It was a place of sophistication. Uh, they had one of the greatest libraries. In fact, it was the third largest library in the ancient world. Alexandria in Egypt had the, the number one library, and then Pergamum had the second, and then Ephesus had the third. By the way, Pergamum is where they invented paper. Isn't that fascinating? Um, and Ephesus had a theater. Think about this. An ancient world. They had a theater that sat 25,000 people. I mean, the Budweiser Center is only a few thousand. 
right? The Denver Stadium is what, 50,000, 75,000? The what? Oh, okay, the Pepsi Center is... Okay, <laughs> that's massive. Especially for the ancient world. Uh, uh, Ephesus also had one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the Temple of Diana, which we know later on Paul has a skirmish with. But it was literally one of the most epic things that people would travel all over the place to view this temple. Why? Because it was just absolutely beautiful and, and just gorgeous. It, and so it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And interestingly, Ephesus had a, Ephesus had a large Jewish population. So here's a few fun pictures just for kicks and giggles. Uh, so this is what modern-day Ephesus looks like. In other words, it's not a real city. It's just ruins. Uh, but this is what it looks like. Uh, this was the library. This is the entrance to the library. This is quite the library. If you want to see, those are people. That's the library. <laughs> this is like that Beauty and the Beast scene, you know, in the cartoon where Beauty walks into the Beast's library and she's like, whoa, look at all these books. Yeah, that's what I imagine the Library of Ephesus looked like. Here's the theater. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, this is just crazy to me. Uh, this is an uh, artist's rendition of what the temple probably looked like, or the temple Diana. Yeah, we're not talking like a little building. We're talking massive, massive, massive. This is Roman culture. So everything has to be big and grand and marble and crazy, over-the-top kind of stuff. So here's the concept then. Basically, if Paul could stay in Ephesus, or Paul stayed in Ephesus, he wouldn't have to travel to evangelize. People would come to him, and he could evangelize the entirety of Asia Minor by pouring into one place because it was a hub of commerce and trade. And you can actually see that scripturally in the book of Colossians. You realize that Paul never went to Colossae? And yet he knew a lot of the people in Colossae. Because when you read the book of Colossians, he says, hey, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. And you're like, well, how does Paul even know them? Obviously, they spent time in Ephesus. And Colossae sat on one of the major roads. See, Ephesus was like the hub on the coast. And then like a spokes of a wheel, all these major Roman roads went out into Asia Minor. Well, Colossae sat on one of those major Roman roads. So here's all these people in Ephesus, and as they're passing through, they become Christians. They go back home to Colossae, and they start a church. And they start a church in the living room of a guy by the name of Philemon. Does that sound familiar? And we know him because Paul wrote a letter to him eventually, talking about Onesimus, and he says, hey, hey greet, greet, the, greet the church that's in your living room. And where's all this happening? Colossae. But did, it, did Paul ever go to Colossae? No. Isn't that interesting? And yet, oh, look, here it is. So here's Ephesus on the coast. Colossae, by the way, these are the seven churches of the book of Revelation that Jesus uh, speaks against. So here's Col uh, Ephesus on the coast. Colossians is right below Laodicea, if you want, visually. But listen to this passage. I think this is so interesting. Uh, so here's Paul. He goes into Ephesus, right? It says that he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, lecturing and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the crowd, he withdrew from them and took the disciples, lecturing daily in the school of Tyrannus. In other words, Paul rented this little schoolhouse, little uh, speaking lecture hall called Tyrannus. Now that is brilliant. Why? Because as people are traveling through the, the city of Ephesus, as they come into the town, guess what they love to do? They love to listen to lectures. We've changed. <laughs> you know? we, we are not quite like that culture. 
But in the ancient world, they didn't have television, they didn't have Xbox, that kind of stuff. So what did they do? They went to the theater and they went to lecture halls. In fact, I've said this before, but it's interesting that with the Greek language, one of the things that the Greeks loved to do in this Hellenistic Roman world is they loved going down to the street corners and debating philosophy, which makes no sense to me. But they did it. Why? Because they had a language that was deep enough to understand and talk philosophy. And so one of the great things about Ephesus is that here's all these people coming from all over the world, and they just, whenever there was something new, oh, there's a lecture happening, I'll I'll attend it. So here's Paul, he's renting a lecture hall called Tyrannus, and he's standing up and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and people are being saved. And then they are going off into the rest of the world and literally converting the world. Isn't that amazing? Sounds like the internet of the ancient world. (laughs) It's just a brilliant concept, actually. And it continues and says that this continued for two years, get this, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. This was an incredibly strategic move, and it worked. God literally was blessing this work of Paul. And as Paul stayed in Ephesus for nearly three years, do you recognize what began to take place here is that the entire Asia Minor, all that was happening in Asia was being evangelized. Not because Paul was traveling around so much, because he was proclaiming and the people were going out and changing the world. Love that. Interesting to note also that Ephesus was a hub of sorcery and magic. It had a huge occultic grip. Now, I think that's interesting because as you come into Acts chapter 19, you remember this, people are being saved and they all get together and say, hey, let's burn our magic books. (laughs) Which would have been awesome to be there to see this. And they put all their books in the middle. They light the, they light the thing on fire. And it, it tells us that the money calculated, that the worth of these books, when we put it in today's economy, was roughly $10 million. They burned $10 million worth of magic books. Harry Potter went up in flames. This is awesome. Should do it again. Now, that's important to note because Paul, think about this. If you read Ephesians, Paul alludes to this idea of the cultic's grip or the the spiritual, the demonic grip on the city. And he talks about this idea of the principalities, the powers, the mights, and the dominions of this world, that they are all under the feet of Jesus. That even though the the occultic grip on Ephesus may be strong, Jesus is over that. That 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 does not have power over Jesus. And in a Roman Hellenistic mindset, do you realize that 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 is what was controlling the, the minds and the hearts of people? And Paul stands up and says, that's nothing on Jesus. Which is beautiful. That here is Jesus sitting in the heavenly realms, and he has all power, all control, and all dominion, and everything comes beneath the feet of Jesus. And then Paul goes on and says, and you were seated in him, which means all things then come beneath your feet. So it doesn't matter the grip that the demonic has upon this place, that you are over this, that it does not have to sway you. Why? Because you are in Christ. That is awesome. At, at the end of Acts 19, a riot takes place in Ephesus. Here's Paul, and uh, he's been proclaiming now for nearly three years. And the silversmith uh, called Demetrius stands up and says, Hey, we have a problem. And he gets all the silversmiths together, and you realize the silversmiths were the guys who were making these little miniature uh, idols of Diana, and they were trying to sell them because, you know, hey, you're going in, you're, you're visiting the temple, because that's obviously one of the seven wonders of the world. And of course, as you leave, you want to buy your little, you know, your little gift basket. You know, it has a little idol in it, has a little memento, as a souvenir to say, ooh, I went to the temple, Diana. Right? And then you go home and pray to it and all that kind of stuff. 
Well, they were losing business. Why? Because Paul's proclaiming the truth. And they begin to recognize that, hey, our economy is going downhill. And so they start, they start this stir. And for hours on end, this whole group of people in the courtyard gathered together and said, great is the temple of Diana. Great is the temple. Could you imagine singing that for two or three hours? Eventually, eventually the Roman guys come in. They, they squash this thing. They're trying to figure out what happens. And, and Paul eventually has to leave. But listen to what Demetrius says about Paul's work. This is interesting. This is the enemy of Paul talking about Paul, what he did in Ephesus. He says, this is Demetrius speaking, and you see in here, not only at Ephesus, but almost throughout all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that these things made by hands are not God's. What an incredible statement. That Paul's enemies are like, we are losing money. And it's like what he's proclaiming has been told all across Asia. And here we are. What, what we are doing, what we are selling, what we are pushing, Paul says are not really God's. We're in trouble. And he's really, it's really the, tur- the world has been turned upside down. I love that. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, it says, After this uproar ceased, Paul summoned the disciples and embraced them and departed from Macedonia. And he concludes his third missionary journey. But he had spent roughly three years in, in Ephesus. Now, as he concludes his third missionary journey, he visited places like Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. By the way, this is during the, the same time period, this third missionary journey, where Paul writes First and Second Corinthians in the book of Romans. But as he's leaving and as he's heading back into Jerusalem, he's going to sail past Ephesus. But he doesn't stop at Ephesus. He actually goes down the coast a little bit further and stops further inland. And the reasoning, presumably, is because he knows so many people in Ephesus, he recognizes that if he stops at Ephesus, he's not going to make it to Jerusalem on time. And so what does Paul do? He calls for the elders in Ephesus and says, hey, come out here. Don't tell anybody I'm in town, but hey, come out here to this other little town, and I'll talk to you. Now, as Paul goes out there, or sorry, as the, <clears throat> as the Ephesian elders come out, uh, let me read this first. Acts 20, 16. Paul had decided to sell by Ephesus to avoid spending time in Asia. For he was hurrying so he could be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So obviously he's trying to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to spend a lot of time in, and obviously he doesn't want to get bogged down by spending time in Ephesus because he knows everybody, and you know how it is. You know, alumni conferences and that kind of stuff. You can, you, it's so hard to leave. Why? Because you've got to say goodbye to 30,000 people, right? And so Paul's in the same kind of a situation, <clears throat> and so he goes down the road. But listen to what Paul says when he talks to the elders in Ephesus. He says, when they came to him, Paul said to them, this is Acts 20, verses 18 through 38, you know how I always lived among you from the first day that I came to Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials. What an interesting summary of Paul's time in Ephesus. That, you know, hey, those three years that I spent with you, hey, you've been watching my life. Yeah, I served you with humility, with many tears, and with trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews. He says, I did not keep from declaring what was beneficial to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but none of these things deter me. Isn't it interesting that as he leaves Ephesus, he's going to these different cities, it's like the Spirit of God is pressing upon Paul, saying, the time's coming, coming to an end. 
that, hey, what, what is awaiting for you is imprisonment and difficulty and hardship. By the way, do you know what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? Difficulty, hardship, imprisonment. And yet, look at his attitude through this. He says, but none of these things deter me, nor do I count my life of value to myself so that I may joyfully finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, I know that all you among whom I went proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face no more. For I did not keep from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, watch, remembering that for three years, night and day, I did not cease to warn anyone, to warn everyone with tears. Now, brothers, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. And all these things I have shown you how, working like this, you must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And having said these things, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept much and embraced Paul's neck and kissed him, grieving most over the words he spoke, that they were not to see his face no more. Then they escorted him to the ship. Isn't that an interesting summary of your ministry time in one location? Paul just says, I poured my life out for you. Man, I was just, I was ple- pleading. I was, I was just full of tears. I was, yeah, I was full of hardship, but hey, I was humble. And you know, I never took from you. Hey, I always worked with my own hands. I just love, I just love that. So Paul heads over to Jerusalem, and we know that when he's in Jerusalem, he, he, uh, he's, he gets arrested. He's actually falsely accused. He, they think he's some little uh, terrorist from, uh, from Egypt. And eventually he clears this all up. <clears throat> But in the midst of this whole arrest thing, he comes under Roman protection. Now, his court is taken over to Caesarea, uh, which is kind of where the governor's uh, palace would have been. Uh, it was the, again, this was the major seaport in, in Israel. Uh, and his case was to be examined by the governor. Now, think about this. The governor has to work not only with Paul in his case, but has to actually deal with the religious leaders who are accusing Paul. And so you know the story that the religious leaders come out and they accuse Paul and they hey, the evidence isn't good and we're not sure what to do. And of course, you know, as a governor, you're in Israel. So you want to appease the religious leaders. But Paul is a Roman. So you have to like protect him. And so they just kind of keep putting off the case and they keep putting off the case. And then that governor goes away and a new governor shows up and he's like, I don't know what to do this. So they put off the case and they put off the case. And eventually Paul just goes, you know what? Just send me to Rome. Hey, just let me take my case before Caesar. So, think about this. This is brilliant. Jesus told Paul, hey, you need to go to Rome. And Paul says, okay, I need to go to Rome. I'll appeal. Hey, send me to Caesar. And Rome pays his way to Rome. I just think that's brilliant. Uh, so the case is put off and delayed. Uh, Paul, Paul appeals legally as a Roman citizen to Caesar. So the Romans put him on a ship and sends him off to Rome. Now, as he, after he gets to Rome, after a crazy adventure, which you need to read if you haven't read it, uh, he is there for two years, between 60 and 62 AD, in a rented house. Now, in essence, this is house arrest, but he is free to come and go as he pleases. So he can't leave Rome. He's under arrest. But he's in, he, he is on, he's in his own rented house. People can come and visit him. He can go and visit people. It's a great ministry opportunity, isn't it? It's just, I love it. And he's able to proclaim Christ to everyone there. Now, while he's there, he writes the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and he writes his pastoral letters there, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And this is what it says at the very end of the book of Acts. Paul remained two whole years in his own rented house, 
He welcomed all who came to him, boldly and freely preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we know that Paul is killed. What is an epistle? So here's Paul in Rome. He writes the epistle to those in Ephesus. An epistle is a formal correspondence that is meant to be read out loud to an audience. Isn't that interesting? Uh, It's like a modern-day email, except it makes sense. Right? In other words, there's thought in it. It's very purposeful. It's a formal correspondence, and it's not just a quick, you know, little card that says, hey, hope you're doing really well. Happy birthday. You know, it's not a Hallmark card you get down at the grocery store. Right? This, this, is, a, this is a purposeful correspondence. It's a letter, but it's, <clears throat> but it's intended to be taken and read corporately to the body. And it's also presumed that, uh, that once you have it, you're going to pass it around and share it with other churches. So, Really quick, as we're just kind of concluding this morning and just kind of laying the groundwork for the book of Ephesians. As we talked about, Paul's the author. Uh, He's writing it from prison in Rome. It's likely written between 60 and 62 AD while he's there. Now, interestingly, the audience, though we know it's to the church in Ephesus, there's a lot of debate. If you read the scholars, the big fat books uh, on on the book of Ephesians, it's interesting. A lot of scholars are arguing, well, the brilliant minds quote-unquote, argue everything. Every, every book of the Bible has been argued whether or not that author really is the author, which is stupid. I just, you know, it's like, uh, uh, this is John writing the book of John. <gasps> Did John really write the book? I mean, the, the arguments are very illogical at some level. <clears throat> but there's a lot of people who argue even who wrote, the book of, uh, who wrote the book of Ephesians, but it's Paul. Everyone okay so far? Okay, just want to cry that out. But the audience thing is interesting. Ephesians is, is interesting for the fact that it doesn't have personal correspondence in it. In a lot of Paul's letters, he says, hey, tell so-and-so hello. Hey, tell so-and-so hello. Hey, you know that group? Yeah, tell them hi for me too. You would think that if Paul spent three years in this city, that he could have, a, he could have had a lot of personal correspondence. And yet there's, there's no personal correspondence in the book. Colossae, the book of Colossians, has a bunch of correspondence, and yet he never went there. So there are some scholars who suggest, well, maybe the book of Ephesians isn't specifically to the church of Ephesus. Maybe it's to just the church of Asia Minor. And obviously, Ephesus being the biggest city of this place, that's, where, that's what it became known as, is the book to Ephesians. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You can argue however you want to. Personally, I actually think it was written to the Ephesians, to those in Ephesus. And I, I, I say all that not to confuse you. I say all that just to make you aware that if you read certain scholar books, that they're going to argue and push back on some of this kind of stuff. I think it's written to the church in Ephesus primarily because of the language Paul uses. When you look at the culture and you look at the city specifically, there are certain things that Paul speaks of that makes sense far more clearly if it's in Ephesus. For example, the principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. He talks about this idea of um, buying up the time or making use of your time. And he's using language that that makes sense in a huge, massive city, which we'll eventually get to in a few years from now, we'll never we're in chapter 4. God willing. <laughs> Regardless, we know that this is to the, uh, the church in Asia Minor. Probably the church in Ephesus. But it's passed around, no doubt, to all those in Asia Minor. So, likely, it's, it's a group of Jews, but primarily a mix of Jews and Gentiles. That's what I'm trying to get to. 
Also interesting to note that Ephesians is one of the few letters that Paul writes that is not a correction letter. Paul loves writing correction letters. You read Corinthians, it's like, whack, don't do that. Galatians, whack, don't you do that either, right? Ephesians, there's none of that. There is no correction in Ephesians. It's all just the grandeur of the gospel. It's like Paul sitting back saying, I just want to talk about just the richness of Jesus and all that there is in the kingdom. I'm just going to write a letter to those in Ephesians, or in Ephesus. And he just writes, and it's just, it's just the bubbling forth of Paul's heart. So it's not a correction of saying, don't do this, don't do this. He's saying, oh, let me, let me describe the realities of the kingdom of God to you. And he's just speaking from his heart, which is just beautiful. Now, the whole book is focused on your position in Jesus Christ and the resulting practical daily living that flows out of that position. And in other words, Paul wants you to know who you are as a Christian and then flowing out of that, how you live as a Christian. And again, over and over, he talks about your position. This is an epistle of position. 30 times in the first three chapters, Paul uses the language of in Christ, in him, in whom. Saying, hey, your position is in Christ, in him, in whom, in Christ, in him, in whom. 30 times in Christ, in him, in whom. As if Paul's saying, are you getting it yet? No, okay, in Christ, in him, in whom, in Christ, in him, in whom. I mean, he's just, he's hitting you over the head with a two by four. Saying, hey, you got to get a hold of this. This is your position. And if you want a simple summary passage, I think Ephesians 4, 1 through 2 is a great one. Listen to this. I think it summarizes the book well. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, you are in Christ, and your life is to look like his. So here's my basic outline, and we're going to dive into this more in the coming weeks. <clears throat> but of the six chapters, and you realize the chapters we added in later, but there, we have it broken into six chapters, the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters is the theological section. This is all about your position. Paul is just being aggressive, saying, hey, you are to be seated in Jesus Christ. That, that you are never to get up from that position. But in chapters 4 through 6, he comes out of the theological section and gives you the practicality. In other words, how does that look like lived out on your streets? What does it mean to be in Christ at your job? What does it mean to be in Christ down at your school? What does it mean in Christ in your marriage or in your family? So, again, six chapters, chapters 1 through 3 is all about the, the theological position that you are in Jesus Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 is the practical outflow saying, wow, if you really are in Christ, that would affect every area of your life. The illustration I usually use is an electric wheelchair. Uh, imagine yourself, you're seated in an electric wheelchair. Your position is in the wheelchair. You are never to get up from the wheelchair. Hey, stay seated in the wheelchair. Why? Because that's your position. But while you're seated in the wheelchair, you realize there's this cool toggle switch right there. You just kind of, you just, and you just zoom around, right? So while you are seated in Christ, there is a response that flows out of this, that there's a lifestyle that flows out of this, that there is movement and activity and action that just is propelling you forward, but you're seated. You're resting in Jesus. And yet while you're resting, your life is moving and active and functioning as a believer, So that's groundwork. And that was a lot, I'm sorry. But 
as we get into this book, that's going to that's going to help us at least give some framework and some context to this book. Now, next time uh, we're going to be looking at the prologue, which is chapter one, verses one and two. So, if you want to join us in an actual practical study every week, I encourage you to join us. Uh, I would encourage you to read the entire book of Ephesians this week, preferably every day, and it is an epistle. So maybe you should read it out loud. Because it is interesting. When you, when you hear it, it's very different than when you just read it. In fact, doing both is even better. Uh, but read it through every day this week if you, if you can. And then I would encourage you to look at the first two verses and think through how do these two verses kind of give an undercurrent or how do they play into the entire book and the significance of, of this, particular, uh, to this particular book. So I'm really excited about that. Just one final thought. It's interesting, after all this great movement of God that God did through the city called Ephesus from the book of Acts in the time of Paul, isn't it a sad reality that in the book of Revelation, Jesus shows up and condemns the church of Ephesus and says, you have lost your first love. That you have all these activities happening in your life. You have all this great outward appearance of things going well, and yet the inside, you've lost it. That you've kept the outside stuff going, but the inside, you've just it's become dead. So return. And it's interesting, I look at the church today, <clears throat> I see that. I see a whole bunch of people who are going through the motions, and I see a whole bunch of people who are, who are spinning their wheels in religious activity, and they have all this outward stuff, but they've lost the heart of it. They've lost their first love. They have no passion. They have no intimacy. They have no just grip on Jesus Christ. And it's a sad reality to me that here's Paul. He writes this book called Ephesians. Talking about, hey, your position. And hey, would you grow in intimacy and oneness with Jesus Christ? And hey, would you just bask in his presence? And would you fall in love with him? And yet, within one generation, Jesus is condemning that same group and saying, you lost it. Can I encourage us not to lose it? Could I encourage us to freshly go after Jesus? Could, could I encourage us to not lose our first love? Not just have outward activities of religious stuff and say, well, I must be doing good because I look religious. But to actually have the substance, which is a person. His name is Jesus. Thank you for listening to this study from the Book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus Christ, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you would like to view the video version of this study, you can do so at deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians.